Well, if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to take it and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going we're gonna to spend a couple more weeks in the book of 1 Thessalonians before we uh, take a break on the, the Sunday before Christmas to, to focus in specifically um, on the Christmas story. But uh, the next couple weeks actually kind of fit well into the Christmas theme uh, Anyways, so we find ourselves as we're going through uh, this series uh, through First and Second Thessalonians titled Waiting, uh, Living, Waiting, and Enduring for Jesus. We find ourselves in First Thessalonians chapter 4. And we find ourselves in verses 9 through 13. Now just as, just as some context here, chapters 1, 2, and 3 is really Paul uh, talking about his the church and his heart for the church and really a little bit of a, a defense that he had against people who were who were um, claiming that he was just in it for the money and things like that when we get into chapters four and five paul is beginning to address some concerns and some questions that the thessalonians had and so it's kind of a new section um uh, you could say the end of the first section is at the end of chapter three and he kind of starts a new section where he begins to answer some questions that the church had um, and some concerns that were there uh, within the church. So we pick up in verse 9. We'll read through verse 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. Where Paul says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly, mind your own business, work with your own hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Well, few things hinder the effectiveness of the spread of the true gospel more than being a divisive member of a local church or and or being a disruptive member of society. And Paul is going to address that here. He, address, he addresses both brotherly love and how to live as a member of society. So how to live as a member of the church and how to live as a member of the society. And they really do go hand in hand. But Paul isn't just saying this for no reason. As a matter of fact, verse 12 tells us why he's saying these things. Because what's at stake in this passage isn't whether or not we have a happy life or we have a feel-good life or anything like that. What's at stake in this passage is the effective preaching of the gospel. And so the goal in all of this, as he says in verse 12, is to walk properly. Or it literally means to win the respect of outsiders. And thereby show the power and effect of the gospel that leads to a quiet life. And this is something no other philosophy and no other religion can do. So what Paul is saying here is, is um, on the flip side of this, is if, if the society or the culture around the church is going to have an issue or a qualm with the church, it should be because or in relation to the gospel that we love and the gospel we preach. If the society has a qualm with the church, it shouldn't be because we can't get along inside the church and because we're disruptive members of society outside the church. 
want to look at uh, verse 10 just by way of, uh, continue by way of introduction because Paul brings up this theme that we've seen before and he says he, he wants them to do this more and more. We see this back in chapter 3, verse 12, chapter 4, verse 1. Paul is always urging them or, or, or constantly urging them to do something more and more, to abound more and more. We find ourselves in a season of more and more, don't we? More and more shopping. Who still has more shopping to do with Christmas on the way? More and more decorating. My, if my wife had it her way, our house would, 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 would light up half the town. More and more presents. More and more food. More and more family. More and more, more and more, more and more. More and more busyness. And those aren't all bad things. But Paul is urging this young church that if they were going to put their efforts into doing anything more and more, it should be brotherly love. It should be this sort of quiet, peaceful life. And so he's showing them really the theme of this brotherly love. He's really kind of saying that of all things in which there's, to, there's more and more to do, more and more to say or accomplish, brotherly love is not something to be put on the back burner. How you live in society is not something to be put on the back burner. These are things we are to be doing more and more of. So God desires his church to grow in love towards each other and grow in respect among outsiders. And that's what Paul is going to talk about here. And so there are obviously concerns that Paul had. We looked at last week, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. There are obviously concerns in the church over sexual immorality. But now there are some concerns, or maybe even they sent questions to Paul about brotherly love, which is kind of interesting because Paul says, if anything, you guys are the epitome of brotherly love. But as we look at this passage, so I don't get too far ahead of myself here, as we look at this passage, I want you to see that there are three things God wants us to excel in. Three things that God wants us to excel in from this passage. Number one is just that, brotherly love. Three things God wants us to excel in. Number one, brotherly love. Now let's talk about brotherly love. Let's talk about the family of God. Brotherly love. God wants this church, our church, Calvary Baptist Church, to be a church of brotherly love. And that's not always easy in case. Maybe, you're, maybe you can identify with that old poem. Uh, it, it goes, to live above with saints we love. Oh, that will be glory. To live below with saints we know, well, that's a different story. The word for brotherly love here in this passage is, is the word, it's the Greek word Philadelphia, which is where our U.S. city gets its name. It's ironic to note that our U.S. city, Philadelphia, uh, just broke the 30-year record for most murders in a year. It's ironic that a city named Brotherly Love would have so much lack of brotherly love. But I wonder how the church is doing. It was J. Vernon McGee who said that the only workout some Christians get is jumping to conclusion and running down others. Now I had two older brothers growing up. And I was the one who may or may not have been as uh, inclined to provoke them towards fighting. Uh, but we had our share of kerfuffles as we were growing up. 
but there's never any lingering animosity. And when you think of brotherly love, it's really Paul is talking about the, the family love, the brotherly love, that, yeah, there's going to be some things here and there, but there's never any lingering animosity. I love what Warren Wiersbe says. He says that any time the church quarrels, it's a lover's quarrel. And so that even while in the church there may be quarrels, the church should never be characterized as quarrelsome. The church shouldn't be divisive or proud or arrogant, constantly biting at each other. The church should be marked by a natural affection for each other that comes as a result of being part of the family of God. Which is what this brotherly affection is. Which is why he uses the term brotherlies. He's bringing into mind here that we're all part of the family of God. It should be marked by a natural affection and, and it's not just an affection for one another, it's an affection that shows itself in acts of kindness. I love when my kids just, just naturally show acts of kindness to one another. It's like you are human. You can do it. This is great. And that's what God wants from his children. God brings into his family all those who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants this sort of brotherly love to flow from them. And that's even within a church where there's a variety of people make up, made up of different backgrounds, social classes, ethnic backgrounds, men, women, young, old. And really, as we see throughout the New Testament, any time the gospel took root in a community, this sort of love sprang up just naturally. And the Thessalonian church was certainly an example for that. But Paul is being very clear here to the Thessalonian church. Because he says they were actually known for this. We've seen this a number of times, especially in, in chapter 1, where he says, you, you sounded forth, your, your love, and you're an example to all believers in Macedonia. You, just, you, you guys love everybody. Yet they still had some concerns. Now, they weren't really sure if they were, they were loving properly or how to do it. And, and they sent a question to Paul through Timothy saying, man, you can help us here, help us. And Paul just simply says, listen, you are doing it, but, don't, but don't, don't stagnate here. Keep doing it. Grow more and more in your love for one another. Paul wants them to, to continue and to excel in showing brotherly love for one another in acts of kindness towards each other. Which brings me to this question. Have you done an act of kindness for a brother or sister in Christ lately? Yeah, it's that simple. Have you done an act of kindness for a brother or sister in Christ lately? Because he talks about the family of God, but then he talks about the school of God in verse 9, at the end of verse 9, where he says, uh, this is the, the brotherly love, the, the family love, but he says, you've been taught by God. And we looked at this a couple weeks ago. But God teaches us a lot of lessons, but this is kind of the prime one that he wants for his children. He wants them to learn how to love each other and to love those outside the church, but specifically brotherly love. The aim of God's teaching is love for one another. Now, when he says they're taught by God, we, we have to ask the question, well, how did God teach them? And the answer is, the Bible doesn't really say, but certainly... But certainly he taught through the example and teaching of Jesus. John 13, 34 to 35, Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. 
By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So there's the, there's the commandment of Jesus. Jesus even saying, I, I, I loved you, and this is how you are to love others. So they were certainly taught by the example of Jesus. And they were certainly taught by love and experience through the Holy Spirit. We know the fruit of the Spirit is love from Galatians 5.22, but also in Romans chapter 5, it says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so the example and the teaching of Jesus, the Holy Spirit who is pouring out God's love into our hearts, these are all ways they are taught by God to love one another. And of course, we have the commands of the apostles. But again, notice verse 10. He says, All this is, you're doing this already, but we urge you, brothers, do so more and more. Now this theme of doing so more and more is going to bleed over into the next couple verses, but I just want to sit on one aspect of this for now. Because there's a great danger in thinking you've arrived. There's a great danger in thinking that you've arrived at this grace, that you're good to go, that you have no more room to improve in your life. And if Paul thought that was the case, if Paul thought that there, was, there would ever come a time where they would just kind of be good to go, he wouldn't use the word urge. We've seen this word a number of times in Thessalonians already. He's constantly urging them. It's like this is a command. This is what you should be doing. And he's saying, he's urging them, do this sort of brotherly love more and more. Paul is constantly aware that any Christian who just kind of gives up the doing the more and more, any Christian who stagnates in their walk is contrary to the Bible's picture of what's really true of our lives. Because Paul says this. Paul realized that we are a work in progress until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul says, brothers, I don't consider that I have made it my own. He's talking about the resurrection from the dead. But he said, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind, and I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if you think anything else, God's going to reveal that to you. What's Paul saying here? He says, I've, I've put everything else behind me. I'm going to continue to strain until the day I die to obtain the prize of the upward call in God. I'm going to keep straining ahead. I'm going to leave the things behind. And he says, this is a sign of maturity. A sign of maturity is not where you just say, okay, I've made it. I've, I'm, I'm, I'm the most perfectly loving brother or sister in Christ that this church could have. I love in all the ways that I can love. And here in a little bit, you know, I'm, 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 a, I'm a perfect member of society and all these things. God's saying, no, you, you, nobody has the right to say that. In this life, because we are a work in progress until the Lord Jesus comes. None of us have arrived in brotherly love. We need to continue to grow in our welcoming of one another. We need to grow in our hospitality. We need to grow in our service, our sacrifice, our love. We need to do all those things as we continue to show acts of kindness for others. Now what's going to happen next is Paul's actually going to counterbalance. He's not going to contradict. He's not going to say, well, no, but he's going to counterbalance some things here. And he's actually going to talk now to those who presume on the brotherly love of others in order to sustain their lives. 
And so not only does God want us to excel in brotherly love, but secondly from this passage, God wants us to excel in quiet living. Which is why he uses the word and in verse 11. He says, brothers, I want you to do this more and more. And here's some more things that you need to make sure you're staying on top of. And that's quiet living. Now, verse 11 says he wants them to aspire. It literally means make it your ambition. So he wants them to have an ambition. Now, some of us, and I say us because I'd be included, some of us have personalities that tend to just be kind of ambitionless uh, and, and just kind of tend towards maybe just a more chill and just an ambitionless life. But when it comes to the ambition here, Paul isn't talking about what your personality type is. Not talking if you're like a type A go-getter, just full of ambition, wake up every morning just ready to sprint and run and just get things going. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying this is something you can control. This is something he's urging them to do. And so the word aspire means to make it your ambition, to, to be honored, to be zealous. And he's saying you can be zealous for these things, no matter what your personality type is. Now consider that kind of other definition. Consider it in honor, that word aspire. Christians are to consider it in honor to live quietly, mind their own business, and work with their own hands. Now Paul isn't saying that Christians should be hermits, just go hide under a rock. Of course not. But he is saying this because we need to be seen by the outside world. And how we're seen by the outside world does matter. So let's get into some of these words here about living quietly. Live quietly. The, the idea there is simply just means to settle down and not get worked up. Okay? It means, to, it, means, it means to just not go around and cause problems. It means to live quietly. Something had them worked up. Maybe when Timothy was there, maybe he recognized it. Or maybe there were those in the church who told Timothy, hey, go talk to Paul. We've got a lot of things. There's a lot of things stirring us up in here. We're worked up about a lot of things. We're kind of running frantic here a little bit. And, uh, and, and this is Paul's answer. So the question is, what was stirring them? And again, this passage doesn't necessarily tell us, but it does give us some ideas. Because what Paul's going to address next is the coming of the Lord Jesus. So that's one thing. But another thing is, is it, it most certainly could have been politics. And I'm going to tell you why here in just a minute. But the Thessalonica, the, the Thessalonica was a Roman province. And they would only receive the benefits from Caesar and from Rome if they stayed on good terms with Caesar. And there was even a lot of things going on. Remember when Paul came into town? Remember one of the things they accused him of was that this guy is preaching another king, Jesus, and he's defiling, he's defiling and, and, and he's going against Caesar as king, and he's disobeying the laws. And this, was, this is why Paul was dragged, no, he wasn't dragged, but this is why Paul had to run away. This is why the persecution started. Because like this guy is disobeying Caesar. This guy is saying there's another king who isn't Caesar. And we've got a lot at stake here. If Caesar hears that we're starting to worship another king, we can say bye-bye to Roman benefits. So politics could have caused a noise. There may have been concerns, as I just mentioned, over the return of Jesus Christ. Some people may have even quit their jobs because they figured, hey, Jesus is returning any time now, so why work? 
My grandpa used to jokingly say, maybe I've shared this with you before, but he would say jokingly, why do today what you could put off till tomorrow when there's a chance that the Lord might come and you won't have to do it anyways? Now, if you knew my grandpa, that was nothing how he operated. He built a blue-collar business from the ground up, and he was a hard, hard worker. But that, there were some in Thessalonica who, who were really living like that. Why work? Jesus is coming. Why work? The kingdom is coming. And that's how many of them operated. They had mis- misunderstood theology that could have caused the noise. But there's also a sense in which, when you hear this word live quietly, there's also a sense in, in which some people may have carried out the command to show brotherly love to being a, all the way to being a busybody and someone who meddles in the affairs of others. In preparation for this message, I, I read an old sermon from the 1800s by a guy by the name of Alexander McClelland. Uh, he was a pastor in the 1800s, and here's what he had to say about these, uh, these words, live quietly and, and mind your own business. He said, he said, we have no right to consider our wisdom so divinely superior to the wisdom of others that we are entitled to interfere on every occasion with their plans and purposes. Yeah, they don't make preachers like they used to, huh? That's what everybody's thinking. Uh, we have no right to consider that we're so wise that we need to be in the affairs of every single person. And we, we, get, we just get to tell everybody our opinion about everything they're doing and tell them which way to go. I mean, do you know anybody like that? Instead of pointing you out, I figured I'd do something else. No. Uh, they reminded me, this reminded me of, uh, you remember Doris Roberts' character that she plays on Everybody Loves Raymond? It's an old sitcom where, where Ray lives in a house with his wife and kids, and across the street is, is his, mom and, uh, his mom and dad, and Doris Roberts plays the, the mom, uh, Marie, and she is the overbearing, snarky, over-involved, over-controlling mother-in-law who just barges in at any moment and is constantly trying to fix things and fix their lives. And in one, up, one episode, she, she says uh, to Ray in front of his wife, who they two, they, them two butt heads all along, she says, well, if I see something that you desperately need help with, like cooking, cleaning, the children, your hair, I care so much that I have to say something because I want to help. That's not living quietly. That's not minding your own affairs. That's not brotherly love. So maybe in your life, what's causing the stir? This is just summarize everything we just talked about. Is it misprioritized politics? Misunderstood theology? Misapplied concern? All of that can lead to us being a frantic, meddling kind of out of control people, where when people look in from the outside, they're saying, man, these people are just going crazy. And this is what caused them to be stirred, to be worked up. And Paul is commanding them to to live quietly, to live quietly, to make, make sure politics is in its proper order, to make sure you know your theology about Jesus and when he's returning, to make sure that your concern for others and your care for others does not overstep the boundaries to where you're just meddling and you're a busybody, you're a gossip, or you're just getting involved in affairs that you really have no business being involved in. 
Now, I, I put these two together, live quietly and mind your own affairs or mind your own business, because they are, they are closely linked in what they mean. But here's another thing about the politics, because that phrase, mind your own affairs, in the original text, literally means retire from public affairs. Retire from politics. Now, this would have been a little bit of a shock factor, like maybe it is for you, even now. And Paul is not prohibiting involvement in politics, but he is warning them very heavily about how we involve ourselves, lest we are more known for our politics than we are for our gospel. And so Paul is warning them against both being unnecessarily dependent on others, which we'll talk about when he says work with your own hands, but he's warning them against being unnecessarily dependent on others or being a disruptive member of society where the only people who know about you is your politic and they don't know your gospel. And the way that some Christians in this church and some Christians now interact with the, in the public arena, it hinders the cause of Christ. Paul never looked to disrupt society. He let the gospel do it. And again, as we said at the beginning, if the political side of things, if society, if they're going to be, if there's going to be a disruption by the church, let it be the gospel that causes it. That's Paul's life. We can just read through the book of Acts, but we can even just look at specifically when he was in Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17, verses 5 through 7. This was the story. The Jews were jealous. This is after people started being saved and believing the gospel. And so the Jews were jealous, and they took some of the wicked men of the rabble. They formed the mob. Remember this? They set the city in an uproar. They attacked the house of Jason, just a recent convert. And he was seeking to bring them to the crowd. But when they could not find Paul and his, and his ministry team, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers. Notice this. Before the city authorities... And they were shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar. There's politics again, saying that there is none other king, or there is another king, King Jesus. Now that's what I would call a gospel-approved disruption of society. And if we ever disrupt society, if we ever disrupt politics, let it be the gospel that does it. There's a third one. There's a third thing Paul wants them to continue to excel in. One is brotherly love. One is quiet living. And number three, productive labor. Paul says, live quietly, mind your own affairs. Again, those are, those are closely linked. They're, 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 they're almost synonymous. But then there's kind of another side of things. It says, not only live quietly, not, not only mind your own business, but work with your own hands. Work with your hands. I guess he doesn't use the word own in there, but he says to work with your hands as we instructed you. So he's talking about a couple different things as we close out verses 11 and 12. One, he's talking about physical labor. Labor that produces an income so you can provide for your needs. And this is another shock factor as much as the, Paul's saying, like, hey, you need to step back out of politics, as much as, as that would have been a shock factor for them, this would have been another one. Because the Greeks, they, they, they viewed a, a, a manual labor, working with your hands, as something slaves. That was, that was the degrading thing slaves did. 
It wasn't for anybody else other than slaves. They viewed it as degrading. We know Paul was a tent maker, worked with his hands. So Paul is saying here, work with your hands, and it, it carries the idea of manual labor. But of course, the broad idea here is, is not that every, every job you work, you have to be in manual labor making something with your hands. But really, what the idea Paul is saying here is whether it's manual labor or office work, you need to go to work. Because there's another historical context piece that helps us understand. And, and this isn't needed necessarily to, to get the full application of what it means to work with your own hands and the idea Paul is getting here. But it does shed some light on maybe some things in the background. I just want to share it with you. Because there was a, there was a social system in place uh, in Rome called clientela. That's, that's, the, that's the Latin word. And what it was, this, is, this was a relationship between a man of wealth and influence, known as the patron, or the patron, and a client who was dependent on him for food, money, and protection. And the patron would use that relationship for political advantage. Okay, so you have a patron, a man of wealth and uh, influence, and then you have a client. And it, it wasn't even necessarily somebody who was poor or somebody who was a slave. It could have been anybody. But this man of wealth, and influence would promise to give money to this client, and in return, these patrons would use the client for their own political advantage in society. And so both the client and the patron benefited. One got more political influence, one got more money, more food, protection. As a matter of fact, Britannica states that this Roman clientage became the most important social relationship in the Roman provinces. And so in every province, of Thessalonica was a Roman province, these people would have these sort of relationships. And Paul is going to the church, and he's saying, listen, if you're a client under one of these patrons, it's time to go to work. This would have been the shock factor. He's urging them to get out from the advantages of this relationship and to go work and make their own money and provide for themselves. To not rely on somebody else to provide for your needs, but for you to do it as you are able. Paul is saying to bring in your own income, provide for your own needs. He's saying that in the church, the patron-client relationship leads to idleness. And as, and as much as the Greeks viewed manual labor as degrading, Paul is saying really the, maybe we can say the, the, the degrading thing here is unnecessary reliance on others for their living. And that was to be avoided. Now at this point, some of you are thinking, didn't this sermon start out with brotherly love? Where did that go? Where did Paul, where, how did we get to, from brotherly love? And in the same paragraph, in the same context, in the same sort of, sort of, sort of uh, transition in that more and more statement from brotherly love to all this stuff, how did, how did we get here? Well, Paul endorsed and even promoted giving to those in need. As a matter of fact, the Thessalonians, if you go and read 2 Corinthians chapter 8, they, they did this. They were poor people, but they gave out of their own need to the needs of others. And Paul says we should be doing that. You should be acting kindly, generous, giving to those in need. And as a church, we should strive to do that 
but he opposed the dependency of some people on kind of taking for granted the generosity of others. <coughs> Christians were not to live off of the benefit of others. Christians were to live for the benefit of others. And that's what he wanted to get to in the church. It's not loving, it's not brotherly love to impose on the generosity of others. So Christians needed to live a quiet life, mind their business, work and provide for themselves. But as we close this out in verse 12, notice there it's not just physical labor. Paul is really saying, listen, this is a, this is a spiritual labor you're, you're, you're entering into. This is more than just about being a good citizen. It's more about it's more than more about more than just about being a good church member or the dignity of work. This is about the gospel. Everything I've spoken to you in the past 30 minutes has been all about the gospel. Your daily social life can serve to advance the gospel or it can serve to hinder your effectiveness in sharing the gospel. And if you neglect these things, that will hinder your effectiveness. Christians should be regarded as excellent members of society, even if they come under attack for the gospel. And again, the only charges that should be brought against Christians and against the church should be ones society has to make up and lie about. Which is what will happen. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. Remember that where he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's what we're shooting for. We're shooting for all of that, but making sure the word falsely is in there. Think about the opposite of this verse. I mean, the opposite of this verse, Jesus would say, <coughs> excuse me, cursed are you. Cursed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you accurately on my account. 2 Corinthians uh, 8.21, Paul mentions this. He says, for we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Peter picks up on this, where he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they're going to see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. These are the, these are the three things God wants us to excel in. Brotherly love, quiet living, productive labor. And this is all for the sake of the gospel. And perhaps you don't believe the gospel You've never accepted it. You've never been saved and forgiven. God's offer to you as, we're, as I'm standing in front of the baby manger, the manger of baby Jesus, is that that's why he came. Jesus can be yours. He can forgive your sins. But for the rest of you who are followers of Jesus, the question is very simple. Are you excelling in these things? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to excel in these things, in brotherly love, in quiet living, in productive labor. And Lord, may it all be for the sake of the gospel. Burden us with that. Empower us to do that, I pray. In Jesus' name.